Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Mike Jones. Mike is the co-founder and managing director of Science, a Los Angeles-based multi-asset investment firm partnering with and investing in disruptive consumer tech companies in traditional venture equity and blockchain investments. As a serial entrepreneur, Mike has built, invested in, and been on the board of consumer tech companies like Dollar Shave Club, Liquid Death, and PlayVS. Science's blockchain practice has invested in Web3 startups such as Dapper Labs, Railblox, and Protego Trust, which is one of just three banks to have OCC approval to hold custody of digital assets. Before Science, Mike was the CEO of MySpace, and he has advised the founders of Snapchat and TikTok. His experience and expertise in both large and small companies focuses on strategy, growth, and operational efficiency, and has resulted in over $2 billion in exits. Mike started his first company in college and continues to build new companies within his firm, Science Inc. He currently lives in Aspen, Colorado with his wife and two kids. I can't wait to chat with him and share his story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Mike. Hey. Hey, thanks for having me. How was hearing your bio? Pretty good, right? We've done some things. Yeah, we've done some things. Yeah, but it's funny, like, I think it's like when you're focused on being a competitor, you always want to keep winning. So it's like, those are all great. That's all. It's like, what have I done lately? You know what I mean? A hundred percent. That's the curse. It's the blessing and the curse. It's what's gotten you here. What makes you never satisfied? Contentment, right. right? I feel like that's kind of the, the thing that's hardest to find, right? I think it's right. I mean, I think everyone's going to struggle with that. And different phases of life, you have different levels of ambition and kind of grit to go after different challenges. So definitely what I want to accomplish now is super different than what I want to accomplish in my 20s. But it still is the same hunger. How would you describe the difference if you had to put it in words? Same hunger, but what is the biggest difference between what you thought you wanted to accomplish or what you wanted to accomplish in your 20s versus now? Well, if you think about like maybe a balance of money, creativity, power, influence, um, maybe like in my 20s, I was more ego focused and I wanted to be the CEO and that was really important to me and having a team and a following and, and you know, and kind of the day-to-day driver, you know, I kind of moved from like, it's like soldier to general, you know, where it's like, I'm certainly happy to like, go in battle because that's really, really fun for me. But in most of my time now, I'm not about my own ego. Like the successes that I get involved in, sometimes my name's on the press release, sometimes they're not. That's totally okay. That's not my goal. My goal is to see those CEOs become super successful on their own right. And they can go and live in that kind of egotistical framework of power, which is great. But it just kind of changes over time. So it sounds like you're okay with the fact that it changed. You don't wish you were different in your 20s. It just did change. Is that right? Yeah, it just changed. I think your priorities change. I mean, when I was in my 20s starting companies, it was just about me and my friends and having a good time and like building cool software and like seeing if we could like pay ourselves money. And, and then eventually it becomes about, oh, selling companies and 
getting bigger and that's exciting. And then at some point it's like well, bigger companies and more staff. And, but then for me, I ended up having kids and I kind of fell in love with my kids. And at some point they're like, you know, daddy, why aren't you home? And uh, suddenly I'm like, God, I don't really know why I'm not home. Maybe I need to be home. Right. And then there's this shift of like, maybe I don't need to be, you know, on that battlefield every day. Maybe I, maybe there's another way I can play. And so science has been kind of the iteration of that, of like trying to take my tactical knowledge and the group of people that I love building businesses with and syndicate that out to CEOs so they can go off and become successful. Yeah. I love that. I think it's really cool to hear about, and we'll get into all of it, obviously, but that transformation from your 20s and appreciating that part of your journey. Honestly, a lot of people talk about how building identity capital and those cool things on your resume in your 20s gives you the freedom now to kind of say, like, yeah. you can either do something like science and let other people run with it, or you could also, if you wanted to get back in the driver's seat, you could do that too. Yeah. It gives you that optionality, which I think is why people work so hard in their 20s is to feel like they can choose once they have kids or once they enter that next phase. Well, in a certain sense, I was talking to someone today about it where like when you're operating a company, in my mind, everything you're doing is super time sensitive, right? It's like you have to, you know, chew through a lot of stuff to get to your point of success. And if you're the slow cog in that machine, then that's super terrible. And as the CEO, if you're slow, I would argue you're holding back the company's success. When you move later into kind of wherever I am now, board will advisor, strategist, it's not time sensitive stuff. Yes, at times it's like, oh, we've got an urgent matter. We need to get on the call. But and sadly, I do typically inbox zero every single night, so I will probably be the fastest email responder you know. But generally, my energy, my I do not have time demands. Like my time is super flexible. But when you're running a company, you don't get that level of flexibility, which is super different. Yeah, yeah, and even like you know your energy changes, right? I think of even like when women have kids, pre and post their hormones change. Like when you're in your twenties, sure. you can do the all nighters, you can do the eat ramen and grind, and as you get older, it's more like. I want my sleep and like, I want, I don't want to be doing that maybe as much. Which is also why I think building companies in your twenties is the right time to do it. Because at that point you kind of don't know any different. You're like, let's just go super hard and grind it out and make this thing happen. And we're just going to brute force it. It's going to work. And, and that's really, really compelling. But certainly over time, most people, not all people, but lose that specific drive. Yeah. And in many cases, startups aren't logical, right? It's like you have this massive level of potential failure and they're super hard and you're being typically underpaid and you're walking into months where you don't know how you're going to cover payroll and the fundraising environment's unstable and difficult to predict. And so as you get older, you're like, gosh, those are a lot of factors to manage. But when you're younger, you kind of don't have any difference. You're like, let's just go hard, you know? Yeah. Naivety. It works. Yeah, it works. Before we get into the meat of your journey, I do start every show typically with a bit of a fun question, an icebreaker, if you will. Take it whatever direction you want. What is something new that you've learned in this past week? And it could be even something your kids taught you or a book you read or whatever, whatever comes to mind. I love this question because I kind of find it's my job to like discover secrets, right? And utilize those secrets in whatever strategies I'm, I'm working people on. I'm working with, an, with a nonprofit group on a strategy and they found that they can use art as a method to open doors for science. And so... The way I would kind of picture it is if you have a really closed market that's super defensible, like in this case, what they're dealing with is people that typically don't want to be touched or disturbed or integrated with, but they're using something super friendly like art to open the dialogue. And so it's like they send in these artists and then behind them, they send in these scientists. If they send in the scientists first, the organ would just reject, the body would reject the organ, right? But because they're using this artistic approach, it's opening doors that typically would never be opened and they're getting stuff done 
that if I told you, you'd be like, there's no way they're getting that done and they're getting it done in record time because they're using art as the opener. The walkway here isn't like art as the opening, right? The, the walkway here is sometimes you need like a payload strategy where like you do one thing to enter into a place and then you bring in like the real value coming behind it. And I just haven't seen many people do that. So it, it, it was, I've been thinking a lot about that strategy this week and it's pretty interesting. That's super interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like how in writing we say you need the hook, like, you know, you need the wedge, like you need that entry point that is digestible or that's friendly or whatever word you want to use. We have that in some other areas, but that's really cool. I flipped in the word organ and then we we, we got, went right past that. Is, the, is what they're doing when you said like the art and the science, is this nonprofit working with like transplants or were you just giving an example? Oh, no. I was just using this okay. example. They're working with environmental change. They're doing a whole bunch with environmental change globally, which is like super interesting. Different yeah. kind of science I wasn't expecting from you, but healthcare, we love to see it. I mean, we have a bunch of healthcare stuff we've done too, but no, that's not what this is. This is a different story. Cool. Yeah. So interesting. And I think there's a lot to be learned from folks outside of tech and venture, like the nonprofit world and the government world that we can adopt in the industry, which I think is really cool. Very awesome. Okay. Before we get into it too, I have to comment on Colorado. I was just there yesterday. Oh, nice. Oh, well, you should have said I hi. I should have said hi. Are you calling me from Aspen currently? Yeah. Okay. So I was in Vail for a wedding, which was very fun. And I feel like Colorado has to be the most underrated state in the country. Why did you decide to move there? I'm, I'm very curious. Well, let's see. So we've been coming out for the Fortune Brainstorm Conference actually for years. I've been coming. And then I brought my family and we had this rental property out in Manhattan Beach. And the summers in Aspen are like super spectacular because in addition to it being like completely beautiful and there's nature everywhere and the weather's fantastic. There's also like immense amount of culture happening. So there's art festivals and music festivals and dinner parties and salons and the physics Institute and the Aspen Institute, and then the security forum. And there's just a lot of brains coming into Aspen sharing their craft. And so from an intellectual perspective, it's really, really engaging because there's just really, really new stuff, interesting stuff to do every day. So at some point, my wife's like, I love it here. Why do we have this rental house in Manhattan Beach? Let's sell and buy a place in Aspen. And we did. And then we came out the summer of COVID and we were supposed to obviously go back to LA where we had been there for over 20 years. And my kids were like, you know, this town's open and the schools are going back in person. Why are we going home? And uh, so we ended up staying. And then, and I always thought like, oh, well, in three or four months, whatever, we'll return back to LA, no big deal. But then that kept just dragging out. And at some point, my kids are like, we want to graduate from school here. My wife set up a, a neuropsychology practice doing neurotherapy with like brainwaves. Cool. Suddenly, like the remote world was kind of here to stay. It felt super hard to get my companies to go back to the office. So when I talked to CEOs, I'm like, great, let's all go back to the building. Exciting. They're like, yeah, we're not, you know, we're not really going to do that anymore. And I'm like, oh, okay. So suddenly that everything that locked us into LA, which was like kids and schools and our physical office facility and LPs and portfolio companies, suddenly that didn't really exist, right? The kids wanted to be here. Our companies were all over the US. You know, our LPs are frankly pretty global. Science wasn't bringing everyone back to the headquarters. So that felt tough. And then suddenly it was really good quality of life. So we just ended up staying. I love that. That's so, I think there's a lot of people that had that. We're seeing some bouncing back right now that things are closing down, but it sounds like you're there to stay at least for the foreseeable future because the kids like it and, you know, remote work. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we have four more years of my son in high school here. So he'll graduate from Aspen High. 
my wife's practice is really growing here. So she actually needs to kind of be here a bit, but who knows what will happen. I mean, I think at this point, you know, we're really, I'm super open to whatever. I mean, the reality is for the last 20 years, like my days are half an hour meetings, typically starting at 8 a.m. until about six. I could do it here. Like I could do it in Mexico. I could do it in LA. I probably have a hard time doing it in Europe just because of the time change. So like I'm the least physical, like yeah. physically restricted person in the family. So I'm kind of open to whatever they, whatever they need. That's amazing. And tell me more about what your wife does. That sounds very cool. Neuropsychology. What is the practice? What does she do? Well, she's been, uh, you know, over 20 years, she was a therapist and a psychologist and a doctor of psychology and did everything you'd expect as it relates to that, worked in hospitals and prisons and private practices. But then she got really into kind of like neurotherapy where they basically put these skull caps on you with all these electrodes and they measure your brain waves. And then there's a training practice to basically do behavioral change or reduce or increase. And so here, part of our practice is working with Olympians because Aspen has a really strong athletic culture. Like everyone's essentially an athlete here and you end up with a lot of Olympians and Olympians really want to perfect the brain. And so she spends a lot of time with them with Olympics for the brain. She also spends a lot of time with athletes that have concussions and, you know, have had brain injuries and working with them. She works with kids on kind of optimum performance. That could be behavioral change. It could be, you know, increasing the way they work with things. She works with elderly individuals on reducing Alzheimer's or reducing the risk of certain brain-oriented conditions. And then believe it or not, she actually also does a lot of pre-screening for people, just looking at what their brain looks like and how it might be impacted by psilocybin and other drugs that are kind of moving around because I'm not sure what's happening outside of Colorado, but certainly in Aspen, we're finding an older population doing a lot of experimentation with substances. And especially with psilocybin, there's not that many gateways to go through to determine how it might impact you. She can't tell you whether you're going to have a good or bad experience on it, but she can probably tell you if you have underlying risks cognitively that you might want to be aware of before you start doing certain things. And so she has a pretty broad practice. It's It's been really fun to see. It's it's actually been a really fast growing business. And as a guy that looks at a lot of businesses, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. It sounds like you guys are the great duo too, because like you can look at a business and be like, oh, this is actually really good. You're crushing it. And she's really the expert at what she knows. And it's, it's going to only grow from here. I mean, obviously, like, I think, so I don't know, are you familiar with Andrew Huberman at all? He's a neuroscientist. Yeah. Yeah. So he's amazing. And he, he and I actually started a company together like five years ago. Um, And he's wonderful. And one of the things that he talks about is how the reason he went into neuroscience is because it is one of the like least explored fields at the time. It was like one of those things I could become an expert at my age because I have like, there aren't really people yet and we're continuing to discover stuff. And and so that's that's why he literally did. I think his dad might have even recommended it. And so when I hear about your wife going into that, I'm like, we're we're figuring out the brain every day. Like just like we don't know much about the gut. There's a lot of areas. I mean, she's been studying it for like 20 years, but and her perspective is like, okay, well, if you get an annual physical on your body, why aren't you getting an annual physical on your brain? So she has a broader perspective on how this would be positive for people. But but yeah, it's been a, it's really a neat exploration, and she does it for me and the kids and everything. It's been super fascinating. Sounds cool. Well, when I come back to Colorado, when I come to Aspen, I'm going to see her. And she'll come out. Yeah, come say hi to her. I yeah. love it. Um, okay, so let's get into your story. Obviously, you've had a very interesting career, and it started pretty young with starting businesses, which you hinted at. What I have here is that you went to the University of Oregon, and that's where kind of those early days of business building started. But walk me through like what you wanted to be as a kid why you went to Oregon, and then we'll get into the actual early businesses that you started. So tell me more about childhood and and going to Oregon. I was the 
kid that always had like a fun little sales businessy project in junior high school. I was always selling stuff and raising money for stuff. And I think that drew from a place of wanting to be self-reliant. Like I didn't want other, I didn't want someone else to determine whether I was going to have money. So I wanted to make my own money. Um, I wanted the control over that. And I really liked the idea of not having a boss. So I think initial motivations were like financial security and pure independence. And like, let's just figure that out. And so I did a lot of that during high school in a you know, non-structured way. And then in college, I pulled together a group and we originally started a magazine as a business. And then I eventually built an agency when I was a sophomore, junior in college. And that kind of extended beyond my college years. And at that point, I was running companies. I didn't know what a good company was or a bad company. You know, a good month was a month that we paid salaries and a bad one was where we couldn't, right? It was yeah. like pretty binary. Yeah. It was all friends, you know, and so, but suddenly we started doing cool stuff, right? And suddenly this little agency that came out of, came out of my dorm room, you know, was, you know, working with Red Bull and working with really big brands and doing really cool stuff. And so suddenly I'm like, oh, we can, you know, this could be interesting. Now at that point, I don't really understand the stock market. I don't really understand enterprise value. I don't really understand investing. And so there were phases of those businesses as I kind of learned those components of it. But that was the true start, right? Was starting a software-driven agency. And then eventually, you know, we built our own software, right? And then eventually that got bought by AOL. And then I became an angel investor. And I started to understand the cycle of like, oh, I can build cool things with really cool people. And if we do a great job, you know, that can take over a portion of the market. And if that takes over a portion of the market, there's, you know, a really nice financial reward at the end of that journey. And we can do that more than once, right? And so it became this process. Yeah, I think one thing, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is sometimes I think about like, you have to operate at smaller financial amounts to have permission to operate at larger ones. So like, you know, first business operates in the hundreds of dollars, and then the second business operates in the thousands, and then the third is in the tens of thousands, and it just kind of goes up from there. What was like that early business that was like the hundreds business or the thousands? Like one of those early ones could have been in high school, could have been in college, could have been before that you feel like really gave you that bug of like, oh, I like building and making money and selling stuff. Well, I think in high school, I had this like really weird principal at my high school. (laughs) who seemed to always have these like strange entrepreneurial ventures. I remember at some point, somehow it came forth that he had like a warehouse full of tourism books for our state. And I was like, well, I'll sell those. Like, let's go make some money. And I hi- I was a sophomore. And so I hired a junior that could drive. And we loaded up his trunk full of these books. And I just drove around town selling this stuff to bank tellers and insurance salesmen and realtors. And suddenly it was making a lot of money. And some of these principals like, what the heck? You need more books? How did you sell those books? Right? And it was, I think I got over the like shyness of like, how do you sell? And how do you approach somebody It's like, I'm just coming in cold. I don't know any different, right? Like I don't even know the rules, right? And there's that beauty of being naive and young of like not really knowing the rules and just doing stuff. And then you're like, oh, I made a bunch of money. And then I remember then as it expanded into college, it's like when I set up the agency, I just like opened the yellow pages and I'm like, okay, time to sell, right? And I'm just grinding phone calls like from my dorm room. And I remember the first month in college where I was like, hey mom, I made $10,000 this month. Like, is that good? And she's like, well, you know, now you should go make 30. I was like, okay. You know, like I, like, I didn't know, like you have no, no framework. I didn't yeah. no context. Right. I was like, I guess that's, I guess that's just what you do. Right. And the beauty of, again, not understanding the rules is you don't understand what's going to limit you. And so you just go right. And you fundamentally have that belief of like, well, I can just do that because my mom said it's possible. So I'll just do that. Right. And I remember at some point I was like, oh my gosh, I think I might be making more than my parents. Like this is nuts. Right. While I'm going to college and, you know, they were quite paying for my college, which is so funny. 
And so, yeah, I mean, it was just those early experiences and building those building blocks of belief. I think a lot about like, Mm -hmm. like a lot of times what I'll tell, you know, CEOs and students is like, you don't get what you deserve. You get what you believe you deserve. And so if you fundamentally believe that you're worth a lot, or you fundamentally believe that you're going to have a great outcome, then you probably believe you also deserve it. But there's people that don't believe they deserve great things and they typically don't get them. And so I think a lot about how do you build belief, even within CEOs, of quantifying the rate wins, winning early, winning frequently, like finding ways to build it up to the point where they, they can believe, oh, I can build a company worth a billion dollars, right? Like building them up to that point. And to your point, Erica, those initial building blocks start when you're really, really young. Yeah. Like, can I make a hundred bucks? Oh, oh, I did. You know, well, can I make a thousand bucks? Right. And building that confidence stack. And and then also realizing that like the failure, when you do fail, failure is like not a destination, right? It's just part of that process. And so I early on realized that failure was just learning and it's just every failure is just one, one step closer to my success moment. And so failures were good because it means I'm getting closer to success, right? And so I'm okay to chew through those failures. And so that kind of metaphor of like building the stocks of belief and then understanding that failures, you know, giving me learning is going to be closer to the success points they become kind of rooted in me, right? And that kind of powered a lot of what I've done. I love it. And then it becomes second nature, right? That's the beauty of this stuff. It's like, it gets less and less shocking with all those no's or those failures every time, and then you're just immune. I think a huge part of belief that at least has benefited me is like the love and support of parents. And you talked about how your mom was like, oh yeah, I mean, 10's great, but what about 30? Yeah. What was the attitude of your parents or even just like if there were mentors in your life that maybe give you anecdotes or give you encouragement? Because I think there's two sides to it, right? There's like the, oh my gosh, I'm so proud of you for making 10. There's some people that are like that and maybe you'd stop and you'd be like, okay, 10 was great. And then there's the like, yeah, but I don't know. I mean, what about 30? So what was like your, what was the parenting style or like the people in your life that early on encouraged you? Because I think that's a huge piece of it. We we totally underestimate the like voices in our head that came from the people that helped us. Yeah, that's super interesting. And it's funny, I've just been, we're doing this entrepreneurship week next week in LA where we're working with these high school and college kids on building businesses. And I've been writing up these. Wait, yeah. this sounds awesome. What is this through? Uh, it's just through science. So like we set it up, it's called Impact Week, but basically it's it's like five days of epic speakers against like 30 or 40 you know students to basically talk about kind of what we're talking about, but also the journeys of, the, of building businesses. Yeah. Okay, I love that. Keep going, but I love that. I'm very excited. Well, the reason why this is interesting is so I've been thinking a lot about like what are the parameters around belief, and I came up with three things. Although my daughter gave me a fourth, which she's probably right, but frustrated me. Uh, so the three things are privilege, proximity, and practice. Right. So if I grow up really rich and privileged, I kind of just expect that I'm. I believe that I'm going to be rich and privileged, and I kind of just do. Right. And that right there that encapsulates why assholes win. If you're asking yourself, like, why do assholes win? It's like, well, they just fundamentally believe they deserve to win because they grew up in a very privileged scenario. Could be privileged through access, could be privileged through wealth, whatever it is, but they just expect that that's what they're going to do, right? The second is practice, pretty obvious. You do it a lot and you build those building blocks, right? And the third is proximity, which is like, you typically will rise to the level of the people around you. So if you surround yourself with people that are like totally comfortable in low paying jobs and not super aspirational and they want to drink beer and smoke weed all weekend, you'll probably rise to their level. And if you surround yourself with high performers, so that proximity becomes a big piece of that story, right? I was in a middle-class, maybe semi-upper-class family, but 
you know, we went to Europe once when I was a kid, which would maybe we consider upper class, but I wasn't like flying private jets and crazy stuff, right? I didn't expect that I would become super successful, but I did have proximity with entrepreneurs because my parents were entrepreneurs. So I did believe that I could start a business on my own and I could become financially independent and I could own that company because that was part of my proximity. So to your point, in the journey, you know, I had that as belief as a really young age of like, no, you can do that. Like you can start that company, you can build that thing. And that was okay, right? A lot of people don't have that, right? Because their parent, their parent dialogue might be like, you need to follow the rules and you need to go get a job with a reputable company. And that's a fine entry-level salary. Don't negotiate it. Be happy that you have it. Be humble. You know, like don't, don't expect too much. Don't ask for too much, you know, or else. And by the way, that's a huge dominant force within women as well, right? Oh, don't talk about money. Just be, just be thankful for what you have. You know, like let's not push too hard. Those narratives definitely restrict a lot of people. I didn't have those narratives, which were great. And then through the journeys, you know, I remember at one point, one of my first companies, I was bought out of it and then I was subsequently kicked out of it. So like I got a check. So I was really Which happy. One? PPJ Digital. I had, we had a big partner dispute and they bought me out of the company because they wanted my shares. And I was really upset about it because I, because it was my company. I started the business myself and I brought on these other partners. And then I was kicked out in a very dramatic, oh my God, we're 20 somethings running this company. And I mean, I, and like, I, I can't even imagine what it was like back then for anyone working for us because we weren't mature enough to be doing what we were doing. But I remember I started a new company like the next day, right? I was like, great, well, I'll start another company because that's just what we do. And I remember someone coming to me who was a family member that was like, I'm so proud that you can just like move past all that. Like, oh, wasn't that so hard? Like, you're just starting another company now. Like, don't you want, like, aren't you wallowing and just upsetness that you've like got your company stole from you? And I was like, I'm not really wired that way. Like, let's just go, right? But that, always, that voice always stayed with me of like, that was their rules and expectations. It was like, after a big failure, you really take moments to mourn, right? And mine was like, no, I'm just going to go from this office that I was doing this stuff into that office over there and do the same stuff. And I'm just going to keep going and it doesn't really matter. But that restriction always stayed with me of like, they injected that restriction in my brain and I'm glad I defied it. But to your point, those people around you with those words, they stick around because they're telling you rules, right? And so if you're naive and you're like, well, I'm just going to operate the one I operate, but they keep telling you those rules. Then like some people listen to those rules. You know, that's such a powerful example. I think also we could argue that that person who whispered that in your ear didn't have the practice of failing as many times as you did. So like up until that point, you'd probably failed a thousand times in whatever way we want to say it. And that person maybe only failed 10. And so for them, they were still at that top of that, like, oh, I feel every failure. Whereas you're like, I moved past it at this point, like just another one on the belt. So I like those three Ps. And then what what was the fourth one your daughter said that probably doesn't start? Okay. Well, so she mentioned luck. Okay. And you can't deny it because I definitely know people that fundamentally believe they're very lucky, Mm -hmm. right? And they believe that they're going to be lucky even without the practice privilege or proximity. Mm -hmm. So I can't deny her, her statement. She's right. Luck can be a factor in this. Timing can be a factor. There's lots of other things that be a factor, but I didn't want to throw it away because I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe luck is also a thing. The thing is like, I don't know if I can teach luck, yeah. you know I mean? Like I can teach practice. Yeah. I can help you understand how to change your proximity. And I certainly can't change your privilege, right? Like your privilege is kind of what you're born with. Luck, I feel like is a wild card that I don't really know what to do with. When I think of luck, I think of luck and privilege as like cousins. Because when people ask me, like, and this is the obvious 
is it hard work or is it luck? And I feel like you're the perfect person to ask this to because you've actually done the things. I feel like if people were to ask me that, I would say the reason I would say it's mostly luck is because of the family I was born into, which is the privilege. It's the type of privilege. Like, oh, I was raised, speaking of Manhattan Beach, I was raised in Manhattan Beach. I had my mom as my mom. You know what I mean? Like, I actually had food and I had this, my soul could have been in another body. Like, it's a little meta, but I think the luck and privilege can maybe you can pair them when you're doing your talk next week. Because I think they I think that's really right. And it's funny, one thing I debate on, and I've kind of come past this, is like this thesis of belief, it ties into like a lot of manifestation and a lot of new age stuff that people don't really like to talk about. I will tell you, in closed doors with billion dollar CEOs that are billionaires in their own right, they give this stuff a lot of credibility. Mm. You know, they'll be like, well, I didn't want to tell anybody, but 10 years ago, I wrote this list down and I just found it. And I don't know what happened, but everything on the list came true. They will talk about that. You don't, you don't bring that up in a board meeting. As an investor, you're not like, do you believe that you can make this happen? You know, like I've started talking to more of my CEOs about it because I realize I think it's so much more critical than people understand. And belief is an easier word to digest than manifestation or Agreed. whatever else you want to give yeah. it to. And I think there's a process behind it that makes sense. So I've been talking to my CEOs a lot more about this. And I'll tell you, one of the hardest things that I found is as an investor, and because we're working with companies at the early stages, it's like we're working with like two people and an idea. Like there's no data. And what you're really trying to measure is, do they believe they deserve huge success? And like, it's a hard thing to decipher, like somebody's internal belief structure, because they're selling you and they're convincing you, and of course I do. But it's like, do you really believe you deserve to be this successful? And it's funny because I think next week I'm going to mess with all my CEOs and all the interviews are actually going to be about this. It's not going to be about their businesses at all. They're going to come away like, well, I want to talk to you about my growth rate. It's like, no, 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 we're not talking about it at all. We're going to talk about beliefs. And I'm curious how they'll respond. But it's been as a VC, I've been thinking more about this of like, how do, how do I get to that core? Oh, 100%. And there is no easy answer. I think it's also like you want that confidence and that belief, but you also want the humility because, you know, and Adam Grant talks a lot about confident humility, but it's a tricky thing too, right? Because there are some people who believe it so much, which is amazing. And I'm like, you go for it, but then they repel people because they lack that sense of low ego, which we were kind of hinting at earlier. So it's such a tricky balance. And if you figure it out and crack the code, let me know. (laughs) But um, it's it's hard. It's hard to spot that. And it's hard, like you said, to understand people's internal systems. But I think talking about it and at least just bringing awareness to it, especially as a VC, like, hey, I care about this, I think will hopefully get people talking and thinking. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. Well, have a great week next week. That sounds amazing. So let's talk a little bit about those like early days building businesses and doing it with your friends and deciding to do that instead of going and getting a real job. Was there any moment in that journey where you thought, I shouldn't do this. I should go get a real job. Or were you like, absolutely not. I'm just going to build businesses forever. And you always had that confidence. Because I, I know we're talking about this now, but there are moments of doubt for everyone. Speaking for myself, you're still building something sure. and you're like, God, that offer is enticing. Or, oh my God, my friends seem to have it easy. They watch Netflix at night and they just, you know, they don't have to worry about their bills. Yeah. Walk me through your mindset as you were building, like, you know, in grad and post-grad. I think at the beginning, there wasn't a doubt in my mind that I want to start my own company. Like, I think that's just what I was wired for. And I kind of also thought like, I was probably a bit more of a jerk back then and thought to myself, like, there's no one I'd want with my boss anyway. Like, 
what idiot could tell me what to do? You know what I mean? It's like the standard super arrogant early 20 something, like these old people don't know what the hell they're talking about. I, sh- I don't want to listen to them anyway. Right. Like complete rejection of authority, which was probably a defensive mode as a pre-rejection for me getting rejected. Right. You know, I think there were times when I met people that were making way more money than me mm-hmm. in jobs. And I was like, oh my God, I feel so much smarter than this person. And they're like making five times my salary. And like, how is this happening? There's a moment where jealousy entered the storyline where it created, I mean, doubt. Like, I don't think I was at the point of like, well, I better go interview at Google. But I think I, yeah, I was never at that point. But I think there were times when I was like, how is this possible? How is this right in the world? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I feel like I've worked so hard and I'm super broke, whatever. But there was an arrogant approach, right? When AOL bought my second company and I started working at AOL, you know, I was like, oh my God, these people are really smart. You know, like, I think I came and I'm like, oh my God, I know nothing, right? Like at that point, I was like, oh my God, older people knew stuff that I wish I had known. And that's when I think I switched from like, I know everything to like, I need to learn everything that all these people know and I need to know all their secrets and I need to become smart and they're all smarter than me. So there was this flip there. And then when I went to News Corp on behalf of, you know, MySpace, it was even more of that. I was like, oh my God, these people are brilliant. It was like eyes open of what just top level executive management looks like. I was like, oh my God, I had no idea. Right. How did you hype yourself up then to be in such leadership roles like SVP at AOL, then CEO at MySpace? How are you able to, as someone who was always like, I got this, then you have this flip of like, oh my God, I don't got this. How do you get that confidence back? Like, what's the self-talk in those roles? Well, I never had, I never had fear of saying I didn't know. Mm-hmm. My perspective was like, I don't, I don't need to know everything, but I definitely know people that know these things. And so I'm sure I can figure it out. But that's a very self-starter thing. Like if you can figure out stuff, then you don't have to know everything. You just need to know people that know things, right? And I remember at some point, someone's like, well, you didn't go to Harvard, you know, or, and I was like, no, I went to University of Oregon. And they were like, yeah, I didn't go to Harvard either, but uh, I hang all the diplomas from all the people that went to Harvard on my wall. And I was like, I kind of like the framework. I don't have that knowledge, but I have a wicked, amazing team of people that work for me and they are brilliant, right? And I'm going to tap into their brains. Now let's realize, like, I ended these organizations also really high on the org structure. And I had also just made a lot of money as a really, really young person. And so there was also kind of like, what, you want to fire me? Okay. Why would you do this so dumb? You know, I don't think you could take that same attitude if you're like day one Blackstone, like, oh, I'm like the next greatest thing. Like, the I think you could probably so it's just, a completely different. Right. So it's totally different. Like I'm starting mid to up, if not up at the top of these organizations. And so I could be really confident. Like, I don't know that, I don't know that answer. Let's figure it out. But the takeaways there, one is heavily rely on my network. Be totally confident if I don't know things, just be willing, just willing to admit it and go figure out the problem. And in most executive or any business scenarios, like if you're gonna ask to solve a problem, if you solve it through someone else, that's just as effective as you solving it. Like the problem is solved, right? Like, sounds great. Like, I don't really care how you get it done, just don't talk to me about it and go get it done, right? Like, if you do it, if your brother does it, I don't really care, right? And so I think taking that away is really, really important is like not being shy about that and being confident of like, I don't know, but I will go figure it out now. Right. So that was super helpful. I think the second is realizing that when you're solving those problems, you're gaining knowledge. So it's like all those people you've access to, they become part of your knowledge base. And so you learn their secrets and that becomes super interesting and helpful. And so I I certainly love that. And then I think now that what I probably didn't realize is like, 
when you're young and super arrogant, if you're a 20-something building a company and everyone over the age of 30 is just a complete idiot to you, there's a miss there for sure. I sold my company for X. I would have sold it for 3X had I put the right people around me. You know what I mean? But I was so arrogant and so just do it myself and no board and advisors. What's that? That's stupid. Let's not worry about any of that junk. Like, I don't want old people telling me what to do. And that was just pure stupidity and ignorance, right? And like realizing when you're in that journey, you think I'm the CEO, so I have to know all the answers. And that's just like not true, right? The CEO needs to be smart enough to learn all the answers from everyone around them, even if it is senior advisors, and then optimize that outcome. And I kind of felt like it was a not invented here thing. Like if I didn't invent it, it really wasn't a good idea. And that was that that restricted a lot of growth in the probably first 10 years of my you know career. But it's so great that now you're on this podcast, you're doing Impact Week, you're doing these things so that the next generation will hopefully not make those mistakes. But also sometimes you kind of just got to go through it and just experience it to learn it. Yeah. That's the thing is like, if I had told myself that back then, I would have yeah. been like, yeah, sounds like an old guy. Exactly. Stuff. You know what I mean? Like, thanks, thanks for the wasted time, bro. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure it wouldn't have gone well. What's your advice? Let's say there's, so we've got a lot of people now that are listening that are super entrepreneurial and they know in their gut that they want to build things. They've probably already tinkered and built some things, some small, some big. Yeah. Like, what's your advice for like a roadmap for your 20s? And you might look back and say, I think you start companies early because that's what I did. And I had some big exits and it worked out for me. You might say, go apprentice, go learn from other people. You might say, what, go to conferences, come to Aspen, educate yourself. Like, what's your advice for like an early 20 something that has your same energy, exact same energy as you at that age? What do you think if they like take away one thing, they're an entrepreneur, what's the thing? The way I think about it is if you're, if you're waking up every day and you have like a vision and you're like, I, I, I could spend 50 years of my life going after this vision. And if I'm compensated partly, I'm totally comfortable because it's so meaningful to me. You just have to do that, right? Like, so if you woke up and you have that fire, you just have to do it. Like, don't, don't mess around, just jump in and just try, just try everything you possibly can. What I often find are people saying, well, I don't know what I want to start, but I know I want to run something. And my general goal there is, okay, well then like, you need to be a spy and this is the way it's going to work. You have to have some framework of what you want to start. Oh, I want to start something in consumer packaged goods. I want to start something in software. I want to start something in SaaS. I want to start something in FinTech. I don't know what it is. Fine. Then you need to find the companies you respect most in that sector. You need to go get jobs with them and you need to be a spy and you need to go learn everything you can about how they do what they do and why they do what they do. And you will then find your idea there or an adjacent idea. If you don't have the passion and you're just like, I'm just going to start something because this person said this idea, that probably won't work out, right? You have to find the passion. So those are kind of my two general guides if you're that person, right? But there's a lot of people that are like, look, I want to start a company. I like the chaos. I'm all about that early stage build, but I'm not the vision person. You know, like I like finance. Like I like, and then in that case, like find the team you respect, find the leader you respect and go be number two and three, right? I mean, the, the first 10 people at these epic companies make fortunes. Like, yes, the CEO might make the most, but it's like, these are not small numbers. So like in success, people do great. So don't be like, I can only do something that's me because I meet people that I'm like, you're not the CEO. Like, just to be clear, you might deserve really good equity and you can add a lot to a CEO founding team, but you know, don't be locked on that title. Like get on the train, like let's go on the journey, right? So for CEOs, I'm typically like super passion or take on your spy missions, right? And for others, I'm like, find where you bolt on that kind of helps you get onto the train. 
think that's so powerful. I just have to acknowledge the like the spy, the secrets, like some of this language you're using is like super like murder mystery vibes and I love it. But yeah, <laughs> okay. I think that's such great advice. And I think people don't know what that founding team of 10 looks like. Like a lot of the times you, yeah. you don't know what those roles are. Like you just said finance. What about product designer? What about software engineer? You don't understand those early days of building something. What are all the parts? And so that's I right. think that that's really great advice. Like you can still have the big success, but be a specialist in yeah. a different area if you're not the visionary. Yeah. I mean, there's people I've worked with where they've headed up customer support and they're retired for the rest of their yeah. lives. I mean, like maybe you don't think about like excellent customer support, but some companies need epic customer support. That's like a really, really critical customer relations is a big deal. So if you're a specialist and you're really, really good at one of those areas, and then also in an early stage, generalists work too, right? It's like, in startups, there's a lot of stuff has to get done and there's not a lot of defined roles. So you can be part of those early teams. You just have to, if you're going to come in, not as that founder or as that core CEO, just make sure you're locking onto somebody that does have that passion. Sometimes we look at opportunities and we think to ourselves, like, it's a great opportunity, but is this the person that represents the solution to this opportunity? It's like, if you look at uh, many of our CEOs, if I said they run this type of company, you'd be like, it's perfect for them. Like, they're born for that role. Like, obviously they run that company. You could like, if I put logos on the left and people's pictures on the right, you could probably draw lines. And like, we matched it hundred percent because it's so logical for them to do it. But I think where people get wrong is they're like, well, I've got this great business case study and I have no interest in the sector, but I think I'm going to go run this company anyway. It's like, yeah, that's not going to work. Like that's going to. Yeah. Well, they just don't know any better because they think that they also maybe can't comprehend how hard it really is to actually build something. And you need yeah. to rely on that passion when times get tough. And speaking of generalists, just to tie it back to what you were saying earlier, part of that founding team of 10 is like operations. It's like chief yeah. of staff. It's like running the show, running the team meeting. So there, there is a role yes. for everyone that is thinking that way. Well, I could keep asking you a million questions, but I want to be mindful of your time. So I have one final one. We ask all our guests. Sure. Thank you for laying out a roadmap for those that are entrepreneurial. But we ask all our guests this for any 20-something, regardless of if they're in business or not. Is there one piece of advice that you would give them? Sure. Yeah, I, I do have a piece of advice. So going back to this like belief structure, not to hammer we on it. We love it. Hammer on it. It's idea. great. Okay. So what I would argue is, you know, you need to routinely be visualizing what your life, what you want your life to be. And part of that is financial outcomes. And you need to be completely good with that. Like you don't need to feel weird about that. You need to own that, right? And part of that's your company and part of it's your role and part of it's your family, all the components you have. And what I would argue is when you write that list and you can write it monthly, you can write it weekly, you can write it once a year, you can write it once every 10 years. People's lists change. And it's really important for you to change that list. But when you write it, my challenge to most of my students is you need to write it on the very edge of disbelief. So push it to the point where like you almost couldn't believe that would happen, but you're still in the belief realm. Like if you 100% are sure it doesn't going to happen, you've written the wrong list. You need to be pushing yourself way beyond. And another thing I've noted is that when I work with a lot of athletes and these athletes go through these training cycles and they're preparing for some death-defying stunt and they're doing a lot of mental mentalization and mental visualization around what they're going to do. And what I've noted is sometimes even in their, you know, even in their personal visualizations, they're falling. They're not able to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish, just even when they're visualizing. And that's, I think, true for also CEOs. And I think it's true for anybody looking to accomplish extraordinary things. It's like when you write that list, you need to practice that visualization so you're never stumbling. Like you're always able, you're always getting there. And that becomes, I think, super critical for anyone 
trying to accomplish something extraordinary. Yeah, I think that's such great advice. And I think it takes practice to really see yourself doing those great things. And it also takes seeing someone that looks like you often doing those things. And that kind of gets back to the privilege of it too, right? Like I always talk about- like, And proximity. Yeah, and proximity, yes. right? It's like, are you going to a conference where you see someone that looks like you on the stage doing the thing you want to do, so now you believe you can do it? Yes. Well, Mike, this was so fun. Thanks for being here. Can you tell everyone where they can like follow you on social and learn more about science? I know we didn't get into science too much, but you're obviously doing wonderful work there as well. Yes, thank you. I mean, so on, I think I'm M Jones on Twitter, so you can find me M J O N E S. That's pretty easy. I'm super available through Science, so even if you came to Science and you hit our email forms, like I get every one of those emails and I read every one of those emails. So reach out anytime. We look at tons of early stage entrepreneurs. You know, we look for people that can at least articulate what they want to do. They don't have to be right, but they have to be able to state it, right? So normally my statement is, I'd be happy to talk. Send me a deck and some assemblance of financials. It doesn't have to be perfect but enough that I know whether I'm the right conversation to be having. And we get a lot of submissions. So I, I spend all day talking to entrepreneurs about half my time is existing entrepreneurs and half is new. So I'm very open to conversations. Sounds like a great life. The beauty of, of running a fund. And also let's maybe add like another asterisk. Ideally, if we put your face, that this founder that's maybe applying their face next to their company, we could draw yeah. a straight line because it should make sense. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. It should be right, right for them. Exactly right. Um, Mike, thanks for being here. This was super fun. That's what. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.